series on Through the Bible, book by book, at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, to the church at Corinth. I'm sure a reading through of this letter would make you aware that this is the most personal and the emotional of all the letters of Paul. It throbs with a sense of anguish, and yet it perpetually rises to declare some of the greatest glories of God's grace. As I have already suggested, my visit to Corinth during this trip was a moving experience for me. The city lies very much in ruins. There is very little left standing of the original city of Corinth. It was destroyed by the uh, Romans uh, shortly after Paul's visit there uh, and uh, has been lying in ruins ever since. Therefore, very little of it stands. But uh, certain temple columns and other places are there, and as I suggested, the very uh, pavement of the judgment hall of the Roman proconsul is very much in evidence, and the marketplace and other areas of the city can clearly be discerned. And it wasn't hard to imagine the Apostle Paul as he came down from Athens and came into that city, which was at that time the center of, of pleasure and uh, uh, a great commercial city, a city of great beauty with many, many temples throughout the city and uh, had gained a reputation as the center of lascivious worship, uh, the worship of the goddess of love, so that some 10,000 prostitutes uh, were attached to the temple of Aphrodite and the city had gained a reputation as a place of sensual pleasure. Uh, a sex-saturated society. You can see the reflection of this in the letters of Paul to the church there. And uh, I, I could not help but think of the visit of the, of the apostle there. It was easy to imagine him coming in the dust of the road, unknown and uh, unheralded, a simple tent maker by appearance, and finding two people of the same trade, Aquila and Priscilla, he lived with them, began to make tents and preach up and down the city streets and in the marketplaces and the synagogue there. And there God used him to lay the foundations of the church at Corinth. Uh, I couldn't help but think as I stood there of certain phrases that came right out of this second letter of Paul. Uh, the sixth chapter, he speaks of himself. And I could visualize him as he was there in the city of Corinth. He says, we are the servants of God, and as such we commend ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watching, hunger, by purity, knowledge, forbearance, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. And in the standing in the midst of the ruins of the city, it was easy to understand those words. The apostle was regarded as the scum of the earth by the intelligentsia of uh, Corinth. 
with its love of philosophy, its love of the wisdom of men's words, they look down upon this traveler, uh, this uh, peasant from uh, Judea traveling through. He had no reputation. He had no evidences of outward aggrandizement or wealth or power or influence. And yet before he left, he shook the city and established a church that survived the the uh, history of that city and the gospel that Paul preached is today a living power in the earth when the ruin when the city itself has long since crumbled into ruin now you cannot understand this second letter of Paul to the uh, church at Corinth without some understanding of the background of it when Paul after Paul had had established the church there and had labored in the city for some almost two years, he left and went to the city of Ephesus over on the Asian mainland. And from there he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, which you're familiar with. And he wrote it, as you note, to correct some of the divisions that had arisen in the church at Corinth and some of the scandals and the irregularities and immoralities that were creeping into the church from the life of the city outside. We have that letter, of course, preserved for us, and you're familiar with the great themes of it, calling them back to an understanding of what fellowship with Jesus Christ could mean, and declaring again the great spiritual values that make Christian faith a living, vital thing. That's what the church at Corinth needed. But after Paul wrote that first letter, the Jewish party which had caused him so much trouble in the city, continued to gain strength, evidently. And uh, they, they were headed by an anti-Pauline teacher who had come down, perhaps from Palestine, from Jerusalem, and had organized opposition to the apostles' teachings. Paul, you remember, was plagued with a group of Judaizers who hounded him and followed him around wherever he established teachers, uh, churches, and taught the people, came in after Paul had left, and tried to teach the people that they had to observe the law of Moses, and that uh, the great themes of the grace of God were not uh, accurate and, and authentic Christian gospel, and they, they had to be circumcised and all these other things. And this Judaizing party had become strong in Corinth, and uh, they represented themselves as being the true teacher, followers of Christ. They called themselves Christ's party. And Paul makes reference of that in his first letter. Now, after Paul had written his first letter, this party apparently took over the uh, church there in Corinth. And so Paul revisited the city of Corinth on a very short visit and uh, was apparently rebuffed by the leaders of the churches. The very church that he himself had planted had now become so permeated with false Christianity that when the apostle himself came to them, they rebuffed him and refused to allow him to teach within the church. You can gather this as you read between the lines in the second letter of Corinth. And so Paul returned to the city of Ephesus, and from there he wrote them a very short, caustic, sharp letter. Uh, rebuking them and reproving them for their attitude. Now, that letter has been lost to us. We do not have it. 
it is clear that Paul wrote one, and yet it has not been preserved, evidently, perhaps because Paul, writing in the heat of passion, may have said things and gone beyond what the Holy Spirit intended, and so the letter, not being fully and wholly inspired as the others of Paul's writings, have been, has been lost to us. Uh, we do not have it any longer. But uh, that letter was sent by the hand of Titus. And after Titus took the letter to the church at Corinth, the apostle remained in Ephesus, earnestly, anxiously waiting to hear what the results of that letter would be. And that's the note upon which this, this second letter opens. Paul tells them that he's been troubled about them. And uh, he had trouble while he was waiting for them in the city of Ephesus. Verse 8, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the affliction which we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. And uh, then he tells them how, how anxious he was about them and how concerned. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4, I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So he was waiting in Ephesus for word from Titus to come as to what had happened. But while he was waiting, trouble arose in Asia, in Ephesus, that's recorded for us in the, in the book of Acts, and the silversmiths, you remember, caused a great commotion in the city, and Paul was threatened to be dragged before the, before the, um, the Roman uh, leaders, the judges of the city, and at last escaped and decided to go on to Macedonia and to meet Titus on his way back as he would come up through Macedonia. He couldn't wait any longer. As he tells them, he had great anxiety about them, and so he decided to go ahead and to meet Titus in Macedonia. And uh, there he was also intending to raise some money for the uh, relief of the saints at Jerusalem who were experiencing a great deal of difficulty because of a famine that had broken out. So with these two reasons in heart, he went to Philippi in Macedonia. And there Titus met him. And he received the word that the letter, the sharp, caustic letter that he had written, had accomplished its work and that the majority of the Corinthians had repented of their re rejection of Paul's ministry and had begun to live again the life of Jesus Christ. But a minority was still holding fast and rebelling against the authority of the apostle. So from the city of Philippi, Paul wrote this second letter to the Corinthians. And this reflects much of the anxiety and agitation of heart that he experienced. Now, with that as a key, you can understand something of the passion of the apostle as he writes. And from the trouble and the tears and the heartache that is reflected in this letter, there come the three great themes that this letter contains. The ministry of the, uh, within the church, the subject of giving and service ministration by the church, and the subject of authority and where spiritual power and authority actually reside. Now, these are the great themes of the letter. And you, if you've read it through, you'll remember that the first six, uh, five chapters particularly are a wonderful uh, explanation 
of what the ministry within the church ought to be. The apostle knew that the church at Corinth was failing to understand the true function of ministers of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they were failing to obey the teaching of the ministers, the true ministers of Christ. Paul himself and Timothy and Silas and Titus and others who had come to them. And because they were failing to obey the teaching of the word of God, they were thus failing to fulfill their ministry in the city of Corinth. And that's why this church, which had everything, could do nothing within the city of Corinth. And it's to correct this that this letter and the first letter was written. Now, with that key, we can understand the reason for Paul's trouble and his tears and his anxiety. In these opening chapters, you get a great declaration of the ministry, what it ought to be. And as Paul declares in chapter 3, for instance, it's not the ministry of the old covenant, but of the new. In other words, it's not the demand of the law against people to to follow certain rules and regulations. When Christianity becomes that, it always becomes a deadly, stultifying, dangerous thing. And unfortunately, it's become that in many, many places. Not a matter of understanding the power of an indwelling Lord, but simply a grim determination to try to follow certain rules and regulations and demands that are made against upon the flesh. And as Paul says, that old covenant, exemplified by the Ten Commandments, which makes its appeal and its demand upon us without any accompanying dynamic to fulfill it, is always a ministry of death. The letter kills, he says, but the Spirit gives life. And he goes on then to set forth the wonderful ministry of the new covenant, the new arrangement for living. Not the old grim determination to clench your fist and set your teeth and try to do what God wants you to do. That's never Christianity. But the realization that he has provided in you the Holy Spirit to minister to you the life of a risen Lord in whose strength and grace you can do all that God asks of you. That's the new arrangement for living. And so in this section he sets forth the resources of a Christian. There's first the word of God. That's the business of the minister of Jesus Christ, is to declare the word of God. You notice how he puts it in chapter 4? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. There's where the failure of the church in so many areas lies today. Clever, subtle tampering with the word of God. Undermining its authority. Changing its message. Ignoring its declarations. Refusing to act upon the facts that are declared. And Paul says, we've renounced all this. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's the first resource of the ministry. And then, second, there's the, as I've already suggested, the indwelling treasure 
the indwelling mystery of God. You see it in verse 7. We have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power is not out of our personality. It isn't the fact that we're such clever, smart, educated people. But it's obvious that what is happening is something far beyond what we can naturally do. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel in order to show that the power is not of belongs to God and not to us. And uh, associated with this, then, he links the principle of the cross. This is the secret by which the power is released. Is your life this way? Are you showing the kind of a life that can only be explained in terms of God at work in you? That's what Christianity really is. Uh, as people observe you, they see the earthen vessel and they say, well, I don't understand. The kind of living this person is exemplifying uh, can never be explained by the sort of a stodgy, dull person he naturally is. <laughs> Something else must be at work. And the secret of the release of that kind of radiant power is the principle of the cross. And you find it put forth in, in chapter 4, verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. That means to always accept God's judgment upon the flesh, upon the natural life. The cross has judged it, declared it to be worthless. And Paul says, I'm always carrying about with me that sentence of judgment upon the natural life in order that the life of Jesus, with all its glorious possibilities, may be manifest in me. And furthermore, while we live, he says, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake. That is, we're always being put into places of difficulty and pressure and hardship and trouble. Why? Why, in order that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's why you have difficulty. That's why tomorrow morning you may have a hard time at the office. Your boss may call you in and just rip you up one side and down the other, and quite unjustifiably. And if you say to yourself, why does this kind of thing happen to me? Why does it always have to be me? What have I done to deserve this? it will re reveal how totally ignorant you are of the basis of Christian living. You are put into these situations in order that you may react not like the men and women of the world with resentment and bitterness and railing and fighting back, but in order that the life of Jesus might be manifest in your mortal flesh. That's the secret of the new arrangement for living. And that's what Paul says is the glory of the Christian ministry and the Christian life. And then he goes on, as you know, to declare the great hope of the believer, how we look not at the things which are, un, uh, which are seen, but the things which are unseen. And we know that we have a body which cannot be destroyed, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. God has a great future ahead for us. The life we now live is but the preparation for that life which is but to come. And therefore, as he says, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory.
beyond all comparison. The past is but prologue to the future. And uh, then he declares the motives that move him. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, drives us out. These two things. Uh, I won't dwell on this passage any longer except to er, remind you again of the great declaration here of the transforming character of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does what nothing else can do. That's why Paul was never ashamed of it in Corinth, in Rome, or anywhere else. Because it could do what nothing else in the world, no philosophy, no line of argument, no educating process, no uh, re, uh, reformation of any type could ever accomplish. It was a transformation by the implantation of a new life. And of this, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, declaring that God has already reconciled the world unto himself, and his message then to all men is, be ye reconciled unto God. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that is, he who knew no sin, was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. Then in chapters 8 and 9, you have the great declaration of the ministrations of the church, this great subject on giving, and it grew out of the collection for the saints at Jerusalem that Paul was taking up in order to relieve these hungry and uh, famine-ridden saints down there. Uh, giving, he says, is to be the proof of love. Uh, there, in this section, you have that great verse in verse 9 of chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you might be, that through his poverty you might become rich. That's the the reversed process by which Christianity operates, isn't it? As poor and yet making many rich. Even out of their poverty, Paul says, the saints at Macedonia gave liberally beyond themselves. And thus God poured spiritual enrichment back into their lives. This is the, the uh, essence of, of, of Christian living. And it is the basis for the great principles of Christian giving, which are declared in chapter 9, uh, primarily verses 7 and 8. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. There's no warrant here for any uh, financial campaigns and pressure programs to try to extort money from Christian people. Nobody's to be put under any pressure. Nobody's to be put under any compulsion. We're to give as each one has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And with that goes this great promise. God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. Have you dared to try that? That word is as true in, in this 20th century as it was in the first century when Paul wrote it. He that gives, as Paul says, he that scatters abroad shall receive much. 
Uh, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Then in chapter 10 and 11 and 12, you have a change of, of voice entirely. Here Paul begins to speak to that rebellious little minority of Christians in Corinth who were still refusing the authority of his ministry among them. It wasn't, Paul says, that they were refusing him. This didn't bother him. It was that they were refusing the word which he brought. They were disobedient to the truth of God. And from this comes a great dissertation upon the ground of authority in the Christian life. These false teachers were saying, uh, that were claiming the, uh, the, the following of the people on the basis of certain things that they were boasting about before them. How faithful they were, how abundant they were in serving them, how they endured much hardship and such difficulties for the cause of Christ. They were exalting themselves before these people and boasting about their lineage and their background and their education and all that they had been taught and learned in the schools and how much they had endured and how faithful they were to their task. And the apostle cuts right across all this and and says, in effect, you have been deceived. This isn't where authority comes from. This isn't where mastery comes from. And then in an ironic fashion, sarcastically almost, he says to, he, he, he shows them the true basis of authority. He says, if you're, if, if, if you insist on being impressed by these kind of things, well, I could boast before you too. If I did, he said, I'd be a fool. I'd only act like these foolish men whom you follow so easily. But since you are impressed by this type of thing, all right, I'll boast a little bit. I'll tell you what God has done through me. And then there comes this great passage. Are they in chapter 11? Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, he said. And I speak like a madman. Anybody who talks like this is boasting foolishly, but that's what you like. That's what impresses you, all right? Uh, I have... Uh, I have greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, and then this tremendously impressive list of things that he underwent. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one, thirty-nine stripes, five different times in his ministry. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We have the record of it in the book of Acts. Three times I've been shipwrecked, been a, a night and a day, I've been adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, false brethren and so on, often in sleeplessness, hunger and thirst, in cold and famine and in exposure and all these things. And then he says, but this is just boasting. This is just idle boasting. This isn't where my authority lies. If you want to know, he says, where my authority lies and where true spiritual power comes from, let me tell you where I began to learn the lesson of where true power resides. And then he says this amazing thing. 
The God and Father, verse 31 of chapter 11, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I do not lie. This is not going to sound very impressive, he says, but I want you to know I'm telling you the truth. This is the thing I boast about more than anything else in my life. The moment when I began to learn the secret of genuine power. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, guarding the city of, the, of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. Well, what a thing to boast about. But Paul says, as I look back upon that night, when I was so discouraged, so defeated, I thought that my learning and my intelligent understanding of the scriptures and my Hebrew background and all these things would be an open door that would open the hearts of these Jews in Damascus to me, but I found it wasn't. And I had to flee like a common criminal. And there the Lord Jesus began to teach me the wonderful lesson that out of weakness... I'm made strong. That when I am weakest, then he is the strongest. And out of that, he says, I've learned the great lesson to rejoice and glory in weakness. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. And with this, you remember, he recites his experience with a thorn in the flesh. This ugly thing that kept pestering him and prodding him and, and hurting him. And he begged to have it taken away. But the word of the Lord came, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And that's the secret of strength. Not outward impressiveness. Not great prestige and pomp and favor. Not great ornate buildings uh, decorated to the highest degree. An impressive statuary, wonderful paintings. Oh no, spiritual power never lies there. Not in a brilliant, impressive personality with an ability to speak with eloquence and oratory and mastery and command of language. Oh no, never lies there. It lies in a heart that realizes that it can do nothing apart from a dependence on a living Lord within. And the weaker you are, the stronger Christ can be. Isn't that encouraging? Doesn't that encourage you, you weak people out there? Aren't you saying, well, I can't do anything? Of course not. If you could, it wouldn't amount to anything. But he can do all things through you. That's the great secret of this letter. And it's what the apostle longed to impart to these people. This is what Corinth so desperately needed, as Palo Alto so desperately needs it today. Men and women who will quietly believe this great and impressive uh, uh, principle by which God's power is manifest in human life. Out of weakness comes strength, the weakness of faith. And so Paul closes the epistle as he addresses these people at Corinth and addresses us today. Examine yourselves to see whether you are holding to your faith. Are you believing God? Are you counting on him to do what he says he'll do through you? Are you walking into situations and crawling out on a limb where if God does not come through, you'll be made a fool out of? Examine yourselves whether you're holding to your faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? That's the secret of Christian living. Our Father, we pray that the passion of this apostle may not be lost upon us today. That we may realize afresh that the world is as sick and as troubled and as anxious and as problem-ridden and despairing in this 20th century as it was in Paul's day. And it needs, above everything else, the declaration of the mighty gospel of God, the new arrangement for living, the new covenant, by which the Holy Spirit uh, takes the image of Christ within us, makes it fresh and new to us, and thus empowers us to live in the strength and glory of his life in us. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May these truths grip our hearts. In reality, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.